galactic empire, hyperspace, positronic brains, androids. These ideas developed decades earlier than you might think, and they are the legacy of one man, Isaac Asimov. I'm Jason Stark, host of Galaxy. Join me, along with my friends Stephanie and Jacob Yunker, as we dive into the novels and stories of one of the greatest sci-fi authors of all time. From iRobot to Foundation to the Caves of Steel and beyond, we explore the narratives, the meanings, and the legacy, one book at a time. Listen on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit galaxypodcast.com. Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. My name is Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode is our final recap of Gene Wolfe's novella, Silhouette. We're reading it in Endangered Species, uh, a collection of short stories. If you are reading along with us, this is taking us to the end. And before we get into it, we just want to take a moment at the top of the show to once again thank our Patreon supporters for keeping the lights on over here, for keeping us on the air. Your support means uh, the, the world to us, and we're so glad that you're here with us. Hey, and if you listen to us and you like what we do, Check out our Patreon page. Look at some of the bonus episodes we have. If they are something you're interested in, consider supporting us to get access to all of our great bonus content on Patreon. Glenn, it's time to finish Silhouette. Let's get going. Yeah, it's been a long road to get here, but this is going to be it. Well, of course, it's not really going to be it because we're still going to have a discussion episode after this, <laughs> but we are finally going to get the climax of this story, the climax and the conclusion. So last time we, we left off actually at a, a pretty gripping point. We left off when Johan was hanging out with the, the space Marines. He was convinced that a mutiny is coming and also convinced that the captain is preparing for that mutiny. So in, in short, Johan's convinced that there's going to be a battle on board the the spaceship and so now in this section we open with johan arriving at the shuttle bay which is no mere storeroom the the way that we see in star trek but is really just this massive area at least half a kilometer wide there's also seemingly a lot of ships at the very least there are ships with numbers that go up to 37 these ships are talking ships, which is pretty awesome. I mean, they, they talk to Johan when he enters the room. They have computers that speak. And when Johan enters this this shuttle bay, the nearest shuttle to him says, me, 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 like it's begging to be chosen, to be taken out on, on a mission. This is a really interesting computer program. It's, I, I don't know, maybe they've been programmed to behave like dogs or, or something like that. That seems like the kind of idea Gene Wolfe would have here. <laughs> and in this moment... We don't really quite know what Johan is up to, but to start anyway in this scene, Johan is really interested in which of these boats brought Helmet back from the surface, and also in whether any of the other boats have ever been used. And of course, they they have not. None of them have ever been used since they left Earth, except for the one that brought Helmet and the away team down to the surface. Uh, we learned here as well that there are four different types of boats, four types of, of shuttles here. And we can, of course, see that Wolf, the engineer, has really thought this through. Uh, there are landing craft. There are lifeboats that are intended for use in a sub-Plutonian emergency. There's missile boats for short-range attack. And then the, the last type of boat here are tenders for uh, exterior alterations and repair. And I am really interested in the idea of these missile boats, right? Like, 
who are these for, right? Against whom did the people on Earth think that this ship was going to need to conduct short-range missile attacks? It's not something that we see actually happening in the story, but it maybe tells us a lot about what the people of Earth think is out here in space. That might be an interesting question to take up at some point. But I also wasn't sure what sub meant in this context, in the context of sub-Plutonian. And maybe I actually would like to get your reading on that, Brandon. What did you think that sub-Plutonian meant here? Well, I'm going to not answer that question first because I have a few other things I want to point out before answering that. Uh, But I do want to talk about, before talking about this sub-Plutonian thing, which I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on with uh, Pluto in this story, and we're going to connect some of the dots in the discussion, but I'll bring up some things here. First, though, the regulations that Johan is talking about in this scene are really interesting to me, particularly regarding the captain's right or lack thereof to leave the ship, save being in a friendly port. Johan is wondering whether the captain is merely announcing that she's leaving the ship because he doesn't believe the captain would break regulations. Johan, at this point in the story, seems to still have some sense that the captain has honor. And we've seen this come up in the story before that Johan holds to these old ideals that he believes no one kind of hangs on to anymore. And the one thing that is keeping these ideals alive is the rank structure of the ship. So Johan wonders whether or not the captain is merely announcing that she's leaving the ship in order to prompt maybe the mutinous contingent on the ship to reveal themselves. If she announces that she's leaving, it might cause enough of a stir to see who the real architects of the mutiny are and what the real dangerous uh, mutiny groups are and how they'd act. But this is just Johan's supposition. uh, And we're going to find out whether or not the captain does actually intend to leave the ship. But he's right to suspect that this is going to prompt the uh, architects of the mutiny to out themselves. It's uh, it's an interesting little mind game that Johan is engaging with, a little thought puzzle. But I'll, I'll talk about the subplutonian phrase here. My take on this phrase subplutonian emergency is that the lifeboats were a failsafe in case there was some reason to abandon ship while the crew was still in our solar system. So the so if there was like a malfunction on the ship, the captain could order an abandoned ship prior to leaving Pluto's orbit or space and the crew could still be rescued given that that malfunction took place you know within the reach of our own solar system and this is interesting to me this is the second mention of Pluto in the story it was around the time of leaving the solar system of flying beyond Pluto that a bunch of these cults on the ship started taking form and experiencing strange contact with these cosmic beings. And now we have in the story two explicit references to Roman mythology. We have Pluto and Neptune. Pluto is, of course, the god of the underworld. Uh, Neptune is the god of the sea, the Roman equivalent of Poseidon. And uh, I just want us to keep these ideas in mind and see if they're playing a symbolic role in the story. We'll certainly be talking about that in the discussion. 
Right. And that was why I glommed on to this use of sub here, because this clearly is what it means, right? That if you're still in the solar system and something goes wrong with the ship, everyone can get out on these uh, these boats that don't have any kind of you know near light speed engine and you can make it back to, to Earth and everything everything will be fine, right? You can you can get saved. But once you're out beyond that and, and presumably also once you're traveling at near light speed, this is just not going to be possible. But I was interested in why use sub as the prefix here rather than say pre, like you could use this before you get to Pluto. Now sub, of course, we use most frequently as a, as a prefix in, in English to mean underneath or below, thinking like, you know, submarine or subway, but it also means near or adjacent. That's actually what it means in, in suburb. It doesn't mean below, right? Suburbs are not below or underneath the city. They're near the city, right? They're next to the... <laughs> Speak incident. for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. Yes. Now that I have moved to the suburbs, I have to have to finally defend them. But thinking about it as... And, and, and of course, it might just... And of, and of course, that might be what Wolf has in mind here, is that it's not just before you get to Pluto. It's, it's still even if you're around Pluto, right? That uh, you you could use this if you're still, you know, I don't know, you know, you know, a one AU or maybe even you know five AUs or something like that beyond Pluto. You could still use these lifeboats or something like that. So sub in the sense of around, but it did also strike me that Wolf might mean sub as in below, as in below hell, even deeper than hell here. So I don't know. I wanted to point that out here because I know that we're going to have to take up all of this Plutonian imagery uh, in the in the discussion episode. But all right, we can get back to the scene now. So what Johan is doing here is stealing a shuttle so that he can go down to the planet. And Wolf doesn't tell us why. In fact, we've not had much of Johan's reasoning narrated to us this entire story. We talked about that a little bit last episode as well. Now, the missile boat would obviously be the most defensible if he thinks that someone is going to try to stop him. But it will also be the hardest of them to hide on the surface because it's the, it's the biggest and so in the end, he decides to take one of the tenders, presumably because they're the smallest, and he gets to work transferring gear from one of the lifeboats to one of the, the tenders. I'm not sure this is the choice I would have made. I think I would have just taken the lifeboat rather than transfer all that stuff and lose precious minutes here. But it is what Johan does, and he then tells this tender to launch itself and then go dock at a hatch near the bridge and to wait for him there. At the same time, though, the shadow is, I think, on my side in this uh, this argument, this debate that I invented and it decided to insert into this into this story. <laughs> the shadow is telling Johan to just go now, to not delay. But Johan tells the shadow that there are some things he needs. Number one, he needs his books, uh, but he also wants to try to convince Grit to come with him. And I think Johan's got his priorities right there. But as Johan is having this conversation, Helmet appears from between two of the boats. He wants to know who Johan is talking to. Now, of course, right, the only answer can be myself, and then to quickly change the subject, which is what Johan does, simply by asking Helmet how he is. And this really reminded me of uh, Han Solo and the Death Star in uh, the first Star Wars movie, very badly trying to change the subject. Uh, this is, though, actually really quite a tense scene, because Johan is clearly up to something and doing a bad job of, of hiding it. We know what it is, right? We know what he's getting up to, even though Helmet may not. Uh, but Helmet has to be wondering what Johan is even doing in the shuttle bay to begin with. This isn't a place that people are just hanging around doing stuff in. But Helmet plays along here. He says, ah, it's good to be back. Good to take off the breath mask. And then he asks Johan if Carl and the others have made any progress with the bugs. And by bugs, he means the airborne bacteria on the planet. And the, the question is whether or not they infect humans, or if they do, whether a vaccine can be created. Carl, we should say, is 
the the doctor. I don't think we ever used his name, even though we have met this character. And Helmut finishes this up by saying, you wouldn't think there would be such a stew of single-celled organisms. And this raises a lot of questions, right? I mean, for one, this is the first that we, the reader, are hearing of this. And so we naturally are going to have this question of why hasn't the captain been clear about this being the reason, these single cell organisms, these bacteria being the reason that people are wearing masks down on the planet. I mean, Obi-Wan Kenobi wouldn't actually accuse her of lying because, you know, what she told Johan is true from a certain point of view, right? The air is fine. It's just that there's something living in it that might kill you. But still, it seems like a lie to me. Uh, We do not have time to dwell on this in the narrative because this is the point where Helmet notices the scratches on Johan's arms and legs, these scratches that perfectly match the wounds that he himself has sustained on the surface of the planet. And this means that Johan has been down there as well, even though Johan is denying it. But Helmet does not suspect that Johan is going rogue here the way that he clearly is, or, you know, that he's possessed by a shadow monster that teleports him to the planet the way that he also is, because that's a ridiculous thing, of course. But Helmet believes instead that Johan has been on the surface as the captain's secret agent, secret representative, while Helmet and his team have been the sort of public expedition that the rest of the crew can know about, a kind of cover story for Johan's secret mission. And now he's just trying to be chummy with Johan. He wants to know what Johan's purpose was, what he was looking for. But there is not really actually going to be any answer because Helmut isn't really looking for the answer here. He's already decided to physically assault Johan, to attack him. Johan has seen this coming, right? He's able to read this scene as well, but he still doesn't react quickly enough. And Helmut stabs at him with a knife. But just like with Heinz and company, the shadow is there. And this time, the shadow doesn't just take the weapon and incapacitate Helmut. It kills Helmet. And, and here's the description. I think this is pretty gripping. Helmet's knife was free now, but the black tissue covered his face. Johan watched. Helmet went limp, his sandals pinioning him still to the steel deck, his slack body floating like a balloon on a string. From under the dark covering came a continued soft grunting that soon grew weak, then stopped. And then after a while, the, the shadow rejoins Johan and it tells him that it is possible to detach from him as he's just seen, but it's not something that he desires. He really wants to be connected to Johan, but if he needs to kill someone, he can do this. Now, at this point, Johan needs to get a, a move on it. So he's getting out of here. When he opens the door to the shuttle bay, he finds the corpse of a marine sentry, presumably killed by helmet. And she has slashes on her chest and her crotch that seem like maybe they're ritualistic. And so Johan surmises that Helmet was not on the captain's side, that this was he was not the captain's agent here when he was attacking Johan or killing this sentry, but is one of the occultists or, or possibly a member of another group entirely. This scene was, I think, really gripping for me. I, I love the comedy here of Johan needing to take his G.K. Chesterton poetry with him when he escapes to the planet. But things have gotten really, really dark in this story. They really have. And I'm kind of at the point in this narrative where I don't trust anything Johan says out loud to like any other character, because I just I don't know what he's thinking. I don't know what his motivations are. And they won't be revealed to us really until the end of the story, which we are nearly at. But Johan is kind of operating on his own at this point. He's kind of looking out for himself in some way, even though he's getting this ship to go down to the planet. Uh, We'll see whether or not that is what he's really trying to do. 
all of this action is just building and building and building. And we're going to talk about what Wolf is doing here in terms of craft uh, in the discussion. But you're right. Things have gotten really, really dark. It's clear that Helmet believes that Johan was much deeper in the captain's confidences than Johan actually is. Uh, we know that Johan feels left out of the loop and kind of he doesn't know anything that's going on. He wasn't even aware there were all these other cults and groups and contingents struggling for power until just a few days ago. But we also learned that it was indeed Johan that was on the planet before uh, the human that they saw walking because Helmet had seen him. And as you pointed out, Helmet and Johan share the same scratches and scars that are the results of climbing the crevices near the waterfalls where it's indicated that that place is the best chance, the best place for a chance of survival for human survival, but also any kind of life form survival on Neuerdrat. We also get this casual revelation here that Elise has been filling in frequently for Johan on watch. We don't know how long that's been going on for, but this wasn't even possible for us to know unless somebody said it because we have a couple scenes of Johan going on watch in the story, but Johan has not been keeping all of his duty appointments. And this is a bizarre and strange revelation that just illustrates how little we know of what's going on of the actual <laughs> action on the story or what's happening on this ship. We don't know what side Johan is on. We I don't even know if we can trust him at this point. He's not willing to follow the shadow's directions blindly either. The shadow's like, get on the ship. He's really uh, giving Johan a command. And Johan says, like, I got to get my books. That doesn't make any sense as a as a motivation. Well, speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but that that doesn't now I'm wondering if this like vision of the ruined city has caused him to question whether or not to ally himself with this consciousness that has been a part of the destruction of the civilizations before, whether he should ally himself with the the humans and the command structure on the ship that are trying to figure out if they can land there, but they have to wear breathing apparatus because life is renewing itself on this planet. New life forms are at least starting. And so what will humans do if they go down there and land? I don't know. And then we have Johan, the war veteran here, just dealing with that uh, and, and thinking about what humans do when they get into conflict with one another. I, and I just want to ask explicitly at this point, uh, before you respond to all of this nonsense I've just spewed, <laughs> do, do you really think that the war referred to earlier in this story, the war Johan was a, a part of, uh, is the same one that the Blue Mouse is about? My sense is no. My sense is that the Blue Mouse is a century before this, that the Blue Mouse was a 22nd century story, not a 23rd century story. Uh, a lot of that is just inference and gut feeling, though I think we might have some fun in the discussion going through and trying to stake out some positions here and really try to figure that out. But what was your sense of it? Yeah, I, my sense is that it was the same war. I mean, I, I don't recall if we get a date of the war and the Blue Mouse, but we have this kind of weird... Uh, German sort of 
nationality going on in the story. The war is maybe with them. Um, it's certainly worth thinking about. The voice rate is really the thing that ties it together. I don't get the sense that the voice rate is a century old technology. Um, I do think in Earth, like real time, hundreds of years have passed. But I, I think Johan uh, had been fighting in that war that Wolf writes about in the Blue Mouse. I don't know. The stakes are really low on answering this question. <laughs> it's just fun to have these two stories kind of set in the same universe. And we do have a war referred to and we do have the voice right. So I don't know. It's cool. Yeah, I guess I'm not envisioning a whole 100 years prior to that, but I guess something like two generations or something. I mean, my sense of this, and, and I know this is maybe more discussion episode material, but my sense is that whatever's been going on, both environmentally and geopolitically on Earth, those things are probably related, and that this is a process that's been going on for a long a, a long time. So, of course, it's totally possible, and maybe the Occam's Razor explanation that that war, that battle that we saw in the Blue Mouse is part of the war that Johan is talking about. I, I just have this feeling that that's like the World War One to the to Johann's World War Two or something like that. But again, it's really just inference there. It'll be fun to to maybe take a closer look at that in the discussion episode. I am curious as well. I you know thinking of of reading between the lines here and wondering how things work and thinking about timelines is to try to figure out how many people are actually serving as watch officers on the bridge. We we only have three people who are named as being potentially. Uh, in charge of the ship at any given moment, right? There's certainly the captain. And then we have Johan, who serves as a watch officer. And then we have Elise, who serves as a watch officer. Johan and Elise seem to be always relieving each other. So I wonder if they are the only two watch officers and that they work you know, seven days a week in 12-hour shifts. Uh, and if that's the case, I, I wonder how many full shifts Johan has been missing that we can infer from Helmut's comment here versus how frequently has he been late to his shifts. We've seen him be late to one shift for sure when he was asleep. Uh, but I also wonder that if, if they are on just these 12-hour rotations, if the the scenes that we had of Johan waiting around for Grit to come over when he goes and does the book swap and then goes immediately to the doctor because obviously something has gone wrong, if that may that he was late for his shift that time as well. And that maybe those are the only two times that Helmet is, is thinking about here. And so that maybe there is actually an explanation that we get in the, in the text, or at least that it all lines up and that we're not getting told here uh, the way that I think that you've implied that there are other times where Johan has not been on shift when he should have been. Based on information we get about the way watch officers and yeomen kind of have the same shifts, uh, the fact that Grit is off duty at the same time that Johan is might indicate that there are more watch officers, maybe one more. Maybe they're doing eight-hour shifts. I I'm not quite sure either about the shift rotation schedule, but to only have two people doing 12-hour shifts, that would be a nightmare. <laughs> Yeah, for 17 <laughs> of years. Of a schedule, right? yeah. yeah, for 17 <laughs> years. Forget about it. Um, so I do think there have to be other people that are on watch. But you're you're absolutely right to point out that this phrase that Helmet uses, uh, filling in for you on shift, that Elise is doing that, could indicate that he's late often or he's just – there's more slack in his relationship, in Johan's relationship with his duty – but we also, yeah, we just don't know if it's filling in full shifts. You know, Yo, uh, Elise is pulling a 16-hour day uh, once in a while, or he's just filling 
in a couple hours here and there uh, because Johan is becoming lax in his duty. Well, we can think about all of the implications of this and also whether the Blue Mouse War is the war that Johan participated in or not when we get to the discussion episode. So uh, we can move on at this point because Johan needs to hurry now that the, the killing and the fighting has actually started here. The corridors that he travels are deserted, but through the ventilators, he can hear shouting from distant parts of the ship. There are two bodies along his way, and one of them is even a a man that he knew. And as he gets closer to the bridge, there are still more bodies, and many of them are Marines. And it's clear that the mutineers have won this battle, at least. Now, Johan's plan here is to get into the bridge through the rear door of the captain's ready room, which, of course, is locked. But the shadow detaches itself again. It oozes through the seam and then opens the door from the inside. And so now Johan has access to the bridge where the captain is hanging out with Grit and a few other people. On the view screen here, the small bridge crew are are watching the mutineers as they're constructing a a laser beam that they are going to use to cut their way into the bridge. And these mutineers, by the way, are not the the mystics, not the occult people who tried to recruit Johan. These are the computers people. And this includes Helmet, who is there working on the laser, along with some others that we've met. Uh, And of course, that's strange, right? Because didn't Helmet just die? Didn't the shadow just kill Helmet? But we don't have time for that now because this laser is serious business. It means that the mutineers are definitely going to win. They're going to take over the ship, uh, especially with most of the Marines already killed, or at least a lot of the Marines already killed. But now Johan tells the captain that he's got this shuttle waiting outside the airlock. They can take it down to the planet and they can survive this mutiny, even if they can't actually win it. But the captain is not sure about trusting him. But Grit is, and Johan notices here, uh, and will again in a, a little bit, that Grit's shadow is darker than it really should be. And he wonders if it is speaking to her yet. Because of Grit's intervention here, because she speaks up for Johan, the captain agrees to Johan's plan, and now they make a run for it. But they can't get there, because the computer is actively participating in the fight. It's it's closing off corridors to them and that sort of thing. I mean, we think we've all seen this type of movie before, right? And so instead, now, they run for another hatch, thinking that they might be able to get out of the ship that way and and then get the shuttle to come for them. Along the way, though, Grit goes missing and Johan explains to the others that she, as well as her shadow, have doubled back to try to get to the original hatch and thus get the, the shuttle taking care of that logistical problem for them. And so really, this scene is just a big chase scene. I've probably not done a really great job of narrating it because Wolf really infuses all of this with a lot of tension and a lot of urgency. Right. Everything is just layered on top of each other. There's there's not even a moment to catch your breath in this scene. So this scene with Grit is really, really challenging and ambiguous. And I just, I just want to read a little bit because her disappearing or her doing whatever Johan says she has gone to do is maybe a cover for what's really going on, that she's disappeared that she's disappeared, that the shadow has taken her. So I'm just going to do a reading here. Um, This is a scene with Elise, Grit, Johan, the captain, and Goethe all kind of running to this uh, ship, and they're running through the the hydroponics module. Uh, So this is what Wolf writes. Elise had dropped behind her, and Grit, stumbling, was leaning on Johan's arms. She said, she's right. I can smell the plants. Her round, soft face was beaded with sweat. Then she was gone. And this sensory experience that precedes a sort of hallucinogenic episode or 
astral projection episode is is happened two or three times before in the story uh, and johan just tries to keep people moving um goethe is shocked her like face is agape her mouth is agape and he just says she's gone to the tender i think so I think Johan knows what's happened here, which is that grit has been taken by the shadow, maybe down to the planet. This smelling of plants, as I pointed out, is we're meant to connect it to the hydroponics lot uh, module. But I think if we've been reading closely, it's more likely that she's experiencing that kind of out-of-body experience and sensation and smelling plants from the planet the way the explorers, the away team, smelled all of the ferns and the ocean and stuff from the ruined city. I think Johan is covering here for the fact that there's basically aliens on the ship and they're, and they're doing stuff. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think we're gonna have a lot of fun in the discussion episode when we try to read this story from the perspective of the alien shadows and try to understand what, has just happened to grit and and why because we're not going to get an explanation uh when we get to the end here in just a, just a few minutes i want to say just one more thing here because while you were explicating all of this i i flipped to the the relevant pages here in the book and was reminded that we actually do have another named character we see uh, manning the bridge uh, who we've not mentioned in the recaps at all because he's a minor background character but that's this character named Horst. Uh, so there there do seem to be at least three of them sharing these shifts. And maybe I don't think uh, you could go for 17 years doing uh, swapping 12 hour shifts with somebody, but maybe swapping eight hour shifts with two other somebodies. Uh, you could you could you could pull that off. Well, there's more p- going on in the scene that I'd like to point out uh, before Grit disappears. Elise makes this really gross suggestion to Johan that down on Neuerdraht, They'll have to share Grit and Gerda for a little while. This suggests that Elise is thinking that they're going to just maintain the status quo. They've had this great catastrophe that reveals that nothing is really working for most of the people on this ship, (laughs) that they want a new captain, that all this stuff has gone wrong and broken down, and Elise is thinking, well, if we escape, we can just maintain the status quo. We don't have to address the issues that maybe got us into this situation. And he uses this phrase for a little while uh, in terms of sharing the two women. And to me, this is just disgusting because this suggests that they'll share them until they can reproduce. And it's really over the top. And it just shows the extent of the depravity uh, that's become normal to the crew of this ship that Johan is really just internalized as the norm, or at least is presented to us as the norm in this story. And this kind of moral decay we've pointed out before. It's been symbolized and referred to throughout the story, but it's easy to not pay attention to it because we've been in this close third person uh, perspective tied to Johan. Yeah, this is certainly a weird thing to be concerned about at, at this point in time, right? The the question of who's going to be having sex with whom later tonight or tomorrow or whatever seems, you know, not that significant while the HAL 9000 is literally trying to murder us all right now. Yeah, I mean, it's just gross. So this is what Elise is at. And I think we also get the sense that Elise and Grit have that yeoman watch officer relationship that Johan was thinking about with Goethe. They've thrown sex into the equation for sure. Uh, but then I also we also need to talk about this bit with Helmet, uh, which is also very confusing because 
Johan was sure that Helmet was dead, but now it's not clear what's going on. The water is just muddied <laughs> from here really until the the end of the story. The, and the text is so urgent, as you pointed out, Glenn, that it's hard to stop reading and even think about what's going on. But now I'm wondering if something odd is going on with time, if a if a effect is preceding a cause, as we've kind of talked about with all the physics stuff going on in the story, or if I've missed some crucial detail. Honestly, I don't even know. I just have to turn pages to get to the end of the story. It is a crazy technique that Wolf is using to wrap this story up. Yeah, he really turns it on here. And and you mentioned already, Brandon, that where they have wound up is the hydroponics module. This is really cool. This is several kilometers long. It is full of tier upon tier of towering plants that are unencumbered by gravity. And making their way through this is like trying to get through a jungle. And as they go, Johan sees all these weird statues that have been made by the occult people, where they've been using the hydroponics bay for their occult rituals. I, I guess maybe doing some kind of pseudo-pagan nature worship or something like that here in what amounts to the only kind of wilderness or natural environment on the ship. It's a really creepy scene. And eventually they, they make it to the hatch and the shuttle is there, as they'd been hoping would be the case. But the captain is still suspicious of Johan, though now she's suspicious that he's going to try to run off with Grit, whom she assumes is in the shuttle, though I think we don't think that, and then run off with her and leave the rest of them stranded here. And so she insists that Johan is going to enter the hatch last. And then when it's just Johan and, and, and Gerda, his yeoman Gerda, who haven't gone through and gone into the shuttle, Johan actually has Gerda close the hatch and then he locks it shut from their side, trapping the rest of them in this shuttle, leaving them with nothing to do except take off in the, the shuttle. And he orders Gerda to hide here. He promises that he'll come back for her. And now it is time to head back to the bridge. And that is the end of this section. It's really just two pages left in this massive story. And at this point, I really have no idea how any of this is going to be resolved. I have no sense of what Johan is up to, what his goal is, whether being with Grit is a goal of his, or if he's decided that he's into Gerda or, or what, or whether that even matters. But yeah, this is a point where I definitely want to keep turning the pages to find out. And I, I just marvel so much at how Wolf is able to turn this on, how he controls the pacing at the, the beginning of the story so much that it, it's so slow to build. It's so restrained and deliberate. And then all of a sudden, it's just urgency and tension, urgency and tension here in the, the last half of the third act. We will talk about that, and Kim Stanley Robinson has commented on this specifically in relation to this story, saying that this is the first time Wolf uses the technique. In our discussion, uh, in our kind of mini craft and appreciation section, uh, I'm going to read the paragraphs about this from Kim Stanley Robinson because uh, it's really cool to have somebody who is a great science fiction writer in their own right, having thought about what Wolf is doing in terms of technique. Uh, this scene in the hydroponics bay, though, I think is really meant to call to mind uh, Pleasure World or, or Pleasure Satellite or the Satellite of Love, as I sometimes <laughs> call it. Um, and uh, it appears to have been a place now, this hydroponics bay, a place of cult rituals that are tied to probably the drug 
drugs and orgies and uh, as you referred to in the last episode, the after party at the Doors concert uh, <laughs> that has been happening, that these people have given up tending to the world in some way and have used these images of gardens and jungles and lush, fertile life and kind of corrupted them with uh, this kind of dark human activity. That happened in the now defunct uh, Pleasure World where they hung the toys from the trees and created these mazes. Uh, people just don't have respect for life and what it takes to sustain life. And earlier we've learned that the head of this department has been using these trees or plants to make drugs that he sells on the ship uh, as part of these cult rituals. And now they're hanging up these statues in the same way that Pleasure World did before it went defunct. And this is also the section of the story, this kind of imagery connections and symbolism where we get our last mention of grit johan is reminded of his conversation with grit from before and about how she casually participates in cult rituals in order to do drugs and other stuff too i mean this is our last image of grit in the story it's got to be significant in some way especially as the number of uh, female characters whose names start with g and all mean the same thing are kind of dwindling down to one uh, you mentioned also that goethe is told by johan to hide here in this hydroponics module or at least that appears to be what's happening the last person mentioned before johan gives the command to hide is the shadow uh, and goethe and the Shadow are mentioned kind of in succession of one another in the prior paragraph. And then in this paragraph with dialogue, Johan is addressing two people. And I think it's in the same order as the previous paragraph. So it is likely that Johan tells Goethe to hide, even though he could be referring to the shadow. It's ambiguous. And then he closes his eyes and says, like, back to the bridge. And he could be using the shadow to transport himself back to the bridge uh, instantly. Maybe he's mastered, you know, teleportation or bilocation or astral projection or something. Uh, so that's my sense of what's going on here. Right, because when the next scene starts, we're just on the bridge. We don't ever get narrated any kind of journey, which is just good storytelling, whether or not your characters are, are teleporting. We don't narrate the reverse journey if nothing is going to happen uh, that matters there. But I, I I like your reading of that, that he is transporting at this point. That, that, that single sentence that just says he closed his eyes has to have significance. And, you know, we all know you can't teleport with your eyes open, right? We've seen enough movies to, to know that. Uh, by the way, do you think, Gene Wolfe was a Lou Reed fan. I mean, is this soul story just uh, fan fiction for Satellite of Love? <laughs> I really, I really hope so, man. I, I would love, man. I would love to sit down and listen to a, a, a Velvet Underground record with with uh, Gene Wolfe. That would be that would be a real experience. Oh yeah, if they if they'd had podcasts in the seventies, I'd like to imagine that Gene Wolfe would have actually been hosting a Velvet Underground podcast. <laughs> that's, I don't know. That's a short story someone should write right there. Well, back on the bridge, Johan watches the view screen, and it's it's showing Helmet with the laser. Helmet is telling the bridge crew to surrender or be killed. They've got the laser constructed, and so they've won, and and so on. Uh, uh, Johan ignores this and opens up the door to the, the main corridor where the Marine Commandant is operating a, a field station. 
And from his perspective, this is all going great. This is all going really well. They've cleared the command corridor. Uh, They also have corridors A, B, and D under control as well, which presumably means it's only C that is not under control. He has admittedly lost a few sentries, right? Some Marines have died, and there's been some smoke, he says. But that's it. They've they've taken a lot of prisoners as well, uh, most of them from the, the weirdo religions. They haven't actually taken any of the computer people prisoner here. And Johan agrees with the Commandant's assessment, and he even adds that he thinks most of the smoke's actually been coming from the computer short-circuiting ship components in order to create some fog of war or create some terror to, to create this sense that there's maybe more laser gun shooting than is actually going on. But Johan now goes back into the bridge where he continues to just ignore this business with Helmet and the laser. And what he does instead is lift up a floor plate near the computer and the, the comms terminal in between these two separate terminals uh, on the bridge. And, you know, I think we can probably imagine the bridge of Kirk's Enterprise here. And he knows what he's going to find. One of the mutineers, in fact, it's this character Horst, we just finally decided we should mention, you know, now that we're two pages <laughs> close to the end of this story. Uh, this mutineer Horst has spliced the two systems together. He has he's spliced the ship's computer into the comm system. There's also a dead rat under here, a, a sacrificial victim of some religious rite. And so what's really been happening is that the computer has been showing a video to the bridge crew. It's not ever been a live feed of people doing something people putting together this laser and johan knew this all along because he knew that helmet was dead so now johan rips out the splice and and he activates the shipwide communication channel and explains to everyone else on the ship what has actually been going on there really is a mutiny happening but the main fighting ended a long time ago when the bulk of the mutineers stormed the bridge and were killed by the marines outside but he offers amnesty to any mutineer who stops now and he concludes this speech with This is your captain speaking. Out. And there are just two more things to do, and then we're done recapping this story. Uh, First, Johan talks to the computer terminal on the bridge, and he wants to know, what are the odds of survival now that he's in charge? The answer is 38% and rising. And the computer asks if Johan plans frequent consultations with the computer, with the over-monitor. Johan doesn't, and now the final thing to do is to lay in a new course, because in a storm, land is the enemy. And that's the end of the story. Right. I mean, there's just so much that happens here and so much that we couldn't have even guessed from reading the story up until this point. The ship is showing doctored videos, basically its own version of CGI. And Johan gets mad at the computer for showing Helmet, uh, indicating there's some kind of relationship there that he is frustrated with the way the computer has decided to carry out its end of the bargain. Um and computers, and Johan is mad at this. At the, Johan is mad at the computer showing helmet because if helmet's body was found by someone, the whole ruse could have been up. So these images are from the computers, or really the over the over monitor's imagination or program. And then there's some combination of occultism and computer magic happening here. That's a little difficult to understand, but I think. What we're meant to get from this is that the people in the images uh, the computer was showing are referred to in the text as phantoms. So Wolf is really connecting this non-corporeality of the astral projection that Johan has gotten up to uh, with the ability to show false images and is trying, I I don't know if it's super successful, to show some correlation almost in um, 
the same way that Neil Postman in Amusing Ourselves to Death has a critique of uh, TV as this creation of false images, uh, you know, from the Ten Commandments. It's it's a really that's a really great book if you haven't read a really great book of cultural criticism, but that Wolf is trying to make some connection between the soul, the creation of false images, phantoms, uh, the doctoring of reality and the loosing of the shackling of our own limitations and and whether or not that's good for us. We're going to talk about whether or not this is actually a major theme in the story, and really that's going to be caught up in what is going on with shadows, silhouettes, these computer phantoms. You know, that's all next episode. But I do want to point out here uh, that we get narrative closure on the two motivations that Johan has communicated to the reader in this story, which is the desire to become a captain and the desire to be on the planet. First, this desire to become a captain really happens twice at the end of the story. In the first case, the captain defers her rank to Johan before she gets on the tender to go down to the planet surface, to Nordrat's surface. She does this, I think, out of cravenness and fear because she doesn't want to be killed by mutineers. Uh, and it's the captain who gets on the lifeboat last. So she says, Johan, uh, look at me. You're the captain now because she doesn't want to get on the lifeboat last. And if Johan gets on before her and he is uh, with the mutineers, then he can lock her out and have her be killed by whoever is trying to take over the ship. Of course, Johan is with the mutineers and his plan is to get the captain off the ship. So she's playing into his hands. She's given him the rank of captain. And then finally, Johan takes the rank for himself. So yay for closure. I'm just not sure if this was a good thing or a bad thing. I don't know if anything that happened was good or bad. I guess the big question we're left with is whether or not the shadows are good or bad, whether they're the representatives of uh, Mephistopheles in this kind of Faustian tale, whether the computer is, and what's going on with that. All of that will be taken up in our final episode, which will be coming out in just a few weeks. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to digging into that on the discussion episode because I don't have any clear answers to those questions myself just yet. And I think it's gonna be a lot of fun to work through them together. Maybe this is really a discussion episode question as well, but I want to get some clarity on on some of the things that you've just said, Brandon, or really maybe more the way that you've said it. At what point in the story do you think that Johan decided he was going to get rid of the captain and take over the ship? I have no comment uh, to that question. I, I don't know what I've said that could have indicated that I had any idea about that, okay, okay. when that would have happened. Um, but it's a great question. Uh, potentially after he got drugged and uh, compelled to have sex with her, uh, that he decided this whole system is bunk. But I'm not sure. We're going to be looking at some of the ways that, you know, grit, Gerda and Gretchen are represented in this story and and just what's going on with, you know, personalities. And uh, we're going to have to really do a lot of work to examine when Johan makes any of these decisions. I will say for certain that I think hearing that the ship only had a, you know, 23% or so odd chance of survival, 
coupled with the fact that we learned just before that that he thinks people should live on spaceships rather than planets, that was a major shock to him. And that's probably the point where he started planning all of this or at least working with the computer. But then that leaves out this whole other plot with what is going on with the shadows and the planet and everything like that. This is an extraordinarily complex narrative. Um, And we're going to have to decide, I think, uh, whether or not it all hangs together. And that'll be a fun part of the discussion. Yes. And in fact, I think we'll just tease right now that you and I do not agree on this at all. The way you have you have characterized Johan as working with the computer, I do not think that is true at all. So we'll leave on that and we'll take that up in the discussion. We'll have our, our debate, our argument uh, about that. And uh, so I think that will do it for this episode then. Tune in next time to get the resolution of this conversation. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brendan Buddha. You can find us in our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Please join us on the Clay Temple Forum or our subreddit, Clay Temple Media, and let us know what you thought of this section of the story. And if you can't resist, if you want to chime in before the discussion episode airs and uh, uh, talk about this dispute that we are getting ready to have ourselves, we would love to, to hear about that. And just one more time before we close out, we do want to thank our Patreon supporters again for all that they do for us. Uh, next time, we are going to be back with that discussion episode. So we hope to see you there. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.